The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Amen. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. to 9. Today's message is going to be a little bit more topical than expository, just giving you that from the outset. I want to talk about hope in an age and a culture where there's a lot of hopelessness, and I want to try to speak directly to that. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. to 9. Let's give attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation, of your souls. Let's pray together. Lord, we would pray for all of us who hear and for me who speak. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would direct us to Jesus and that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts and lives. May we not be bored. May we be convicted by it. And may we be drawn to you and see your great love and may it lead to joy, even in the midst of grievous trials. Fill us with hope as we need it. And we pray that that would propel us to do good as we wait upon you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little while back, I think I referenced this book, Ghost Soldiers, which is a well-written book by this guy named Hampton Sides, but it's about a World War II uh, prison rescue in the Philippines where American soldiers were taken captive by the Japanese and He describes at a certain place in the book, he describes what the prison camp is like. And it just kind of gives us some context for our situation, how good we have it. And um, the the camp was called Camp O'Donnell. This was the temporary holding station. And um, it's described like this. One guy says it was just putrid place. The sanitation was so appallingly bad, the the stench so overwhelming, that the few Japanese who ventured inside the camp almost invariably wore surgical masks. The, The open slit trenches were breeding grounds for vermin, black flies, green blow flies, blue bottle flies, and intestinal parasites of every strain and stripe. The men were fed measly portions of whistleweed soup and lugo, whatever that is, a a slop of watery rice that had this nauseating blue tint and was often crunchy with maggots. 
The American side of the camp was equipped with only two water spigots to serve the 9,000 POWs now in prison there. Each barracks, originally designed to accompany, accommodate 40 men, was crammed with more than 100. The double-decker sleeping bays were rank with the smell of humanity gone sour. At night, bedbugs by the millions crawled out to steal the little flesh that still clung to our bones. And then he describes how what was happening to the people, and principally the patients were dying of malaria, dysentery, pellagra, acute dehydration, beriberi, and various sordid combinations thereof. Then he says this, Yet in many cases the act of dying seemed to come by force of will. Every doctor saw it. A patient who was sick, but not necessarily terminal, would suddenly get an unmistakable look on his face, a million-mile stare, a crushing melancholy, as if to say, I cannot bear another moment. He would simply give up. Within hours, sometimes within minutes, he'd be dead. The prisoners called it give-up-itis. The doctors referred to it as absence of spirit, as the absence of spirit. Living was like holding on to a rope, said one medic. All you had to do was let go, and you were a goner. Well, I think that's relevant to our culture today. We're not under the extreme circumstances by any means of a prison camp as POWs. But there is this sense of give up-itis. And this is a difficult subject, but I just want to launch into it because I've been to three funerals in the past two months and and two of them were, were suicides. One that I conducted and one was a family member, a cousin of mine. And both were men in their early 30s. This is a difficult subject. And I think that um, I remember years ago reading The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And there's a dial. And some of you remember the dial. And it's called The Slippery Slope. And it's how to deal with conflict. And we want to be peacemakers. And that's in the middle of the dial. But if you go to either end of the dial, you're either a peace faker or a peace breaker. And the extreme ends of the dials both end in death. So the fight or flight mode, and if you're extreme flight and a peace faker, it would lead to suicide. And the extreme other end of peace breaking and the fight mode would lead to murder. And so both of these have this end of death where people aren't able to face conflict, afflictions, trials, and something has come and rocked their world and now they don't know how to face it. And so, this passage is giving us hope, right in the midst of that, that we'll get to. But what really kind of caught me, and I'm sure some of you saw this in the news, but two weeks ago when the Miss USA, Chesley Christ, she was the 2019 Miss USA uh, winner, jumped from the 29th floor of Manhattan and took her life two weeks ago. And if anybody you would say is like on the top of the world, does she, does she have brains? She was an attorney. Check. Was she athletic? Division one athlete. Check. Was she pretty? Well, she had almost a million Instagram followers, and she won Miss USA. Check. She was um, also on this show called Extra, which is like an entertainment thing. She was a correspondent, so she was regularly on TV. Did she have fame? check. She had everything that the world would have said, this is success. 
This is the good life. This is a person that has arrived. And all were shocked and stunned when Chesley took her life two weeks ago. What happened? I, I don't know. Every situation and per, per, you know, person is different. But what's missing at the core of our being is a missing piece in the core of what is called hope. Enrico Tice, uh, the creator of Christianity Explored, whom Dale Orwig loves. So Dale, you, this is for you. He's home now, by the way. Um, so we're glad about that. But I know he loves Rico Tice, and he, he was very helpful. He has started this new thing called Hope Explored. And it's like Christianity Explored, but it's only three weeks. And it's meant to introduce people to why Christians have hope. And he looks at Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection in three weeks. But he says in, in his thing, kind of the introduction about hope, what's the problem today is that more of us have experienced, he's basically saying our life experience is a problem here and that we've experienced more D's than F's. And I'm not talking about report card. The F's is this idea of all the, the things that begin with F in life that are wonderful. Fun, food, family, fitness, friendship, and falling in love. Those are all the great perks. But he says, for others, the, the Fs have been outweighed by the Ds. And the Ds are disappointment, death, divorce, depression, disease, disorder in the world, and it's all summed up in the big D word, darkness. And so... Two questions that he asked, and I'll ask you this morning. Where do you think the world is going? Where do you think the world is going? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? How would you answer that? Second question that was more personal. The personal question of, what about you? How are, where are you going? <laughs> are things getting better in your life? Would you say they're getting worse or staying the same? Do you have hope? And Rico defines hope for us here. I thought this is the tremendous definition of hope. And then we'll look at the text to see if this is true. But Christian hope is a joyful expectation for the future based on true events in the past which changes everything about my present so let's look at the text that we just read, okay? Verses 3 to 12 is all one sentence in Greek. It's like, it's like Ephesians 1 where Paul gets excited from 3 to 14. It's all one sentence. This is like the run-on sentences of run-on sentences here. From 3 to 12 is one verse, but verses 6 to 9, there's an inclusio. And it begins with rejoice. In this you rejoice, and in verse 9, it talks about rejoicing with joy inexpressible. But in the midst of it, what do you have? Well, you've got grievous trials, and you have this faith and this imagery of this gold that's being smelted and melted and purified and refined so that the genuineness of your faith would be, it would be purified so it would result in praise, honor, and glory. And so verses 6 to 9 is pointing to this 
future event of we are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's the future. And this inheritance, verse 4, that you have now is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And as we talked last week, that's the problem in this life, is everything is perishing, defiled, and fading. And as we live longer to know, then we understand more of what Ecclesiastes is talking about, these things, how difficult it is. But yet we have this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's something in the future. And notice in verse 5, we're being guarded through faith now for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's like, it's going to happen. It's going to bust out any time. And it says that um, you're being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed. It's, it's, it's already ready. It's like supper's ready. You know, it's not like he's still cooking it. It's ready. It's ready to be revealed. And so we have this hope, and the hope is all tied to Jesus. That when Jesus rose from the dead, we too rose with him if we're in Christ. If we believe in the work of Jesus Christ and what he did, when he rose on that third day, the Bible says that we too also rose with him. We spiritually rose and we will physically rise someday in the future. And that gives us a living hope so that we don't have give up itis and we just want to let go of the rope. Okay, this living hope is something that's in the future. Can you go back to that quote again? from Rico, because you have this future, that's all based on the future, but then it's, it, the events are tied to something in the past, and the event in the past is Jesus' resurrection, and now it changes everything about how do we deal with this life, and how we deal with this life is, it says, it changes everything, and what we're seeing for Peter as he's writing this is he's able to say we rejoice, and let me tell you, that is really countercultural to be rejoicing when we've been grieved, grieved by various trials, right? I mean, when James says, you know, just count it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I used to read that and think, I want to have a talk with James. I want to talk to him someday and say, what do you mean count it all joy? This is tough stuff. Well, what I want you to see is that that's what this book is really about. And I came up with a graph uh, this is my first attempt ever at, I was not very good in geometry, okay? I needed a lot of help. Um, true story, I cheated off a girl one time in high school, and she got a 10 out of 100. I knew when she got her score back before me that I was in big trouble. I got a 9, okay? I, that was, I got a C that quarter because I had to make up the test and I had to get a C in the class or I wouldn't be able to play baseball, but I wasn't a good geometry student. But this was my attempt, if you can pull the graphic up, if we, it's actually in your bulletin. And this graph is, is the idea of you think of these two things that are, that are growing, and we should constantly be growing in hope, and we should be growing in our sense of mission and being sent into the world. As Jesus says, you know, as as he prays in John 17, as you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, the church. Okay, so as he's been sent, we are now being sent into the world. That's the horizontal line. And the vertical line is hope. We have to have hope because if we don't have hope, 
will be in trouble. Because hope is this thing that, as you read throughout Scripture, hope is like this engine that powers all of these other things. And so like in just three times in, in this chapter in First Peter, he talks about this living hope, and now he's able to rejoice through the midst of his trial, verse 6. And then in verse 13, he's saying, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully here on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And because of that, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, like live differently, live radically, and, and it's going to be a life of action. And it's going to be a life of holiness. But then, at the end of the chapter, of chapter 1, he's saying that because of what Christ has done, he says, through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So you get the faith and hope, you're like, all right, I'm looking for love. Here it comes, after purifying your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so the hope is the engine, but it always leads to, faith and hope are going to lead to love. And so you've got the hope axis growing and the mission axis growing, and that's where we should be. But in reality, where are we on the graph? And what I was thinking about is all four of these people here that are listed say something related to death. And they have different thoughts about death. And I'll just kind of take you through it. But we'll start with Elijah, who is low on hope and low on mission. And not to say that Elijah didn't do good things, because he did great things. And when he stood up against, at Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, and called them to a contest as to which God can answer by fire and consume the sacrifice. And Yahweh's going to answer with fire and all the water is poured out all over the sacrifice. It's also consumed in an instant. But then he flees for his life because of this evil King Ahab and even worse, evil wife Jezebel are bent on killing Elijah. And Elijah's worn out and he's weary. And in 1 Kings 19... We are told about Elijah that he says he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. This is it. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. He was hungry. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, I kind of, this is kind of comical to me because twice the Lord says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And three times Elijah says the same thing in 18 and 19. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by by a great and strong wind, tore the mountains, broke in pieces the rock before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire... The Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to throw it away, to take it away. And what's the irony? God had 7,000 people in Israel who hadn't bowed their knees to Baal. 1 Kings 19.18. But Elijah's become short-sighted. All he can think about is his own self-pity and himself. That I, even I only, three times, <laughs> that's meant to get our attention, that here is one who has lost hope, and as a result, he's losing mission. And you know what? That was it for him. The Lord says, go and appoint your successor, and he anoints Elisha, and God takes him, him out. That's Elijah. So he's the beginning of the graph. And if you go up to Jonah, Jonah is one who is, he has got hope. Let's consider Jonah for a second. You remember the story of Jonah? God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach to the people. And so Jonah doesn't do it. He runs away. And that's chapter one. And at the end of chapter one, he's thrown overboard and he's dumped into the sea. He's about to die, but a big great fish swallows him up. Chapter two, Jonah repents in the belly of this fish, and he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, and salvation is of the Lord, and he's thanking God, and the fish actually vomits him onto dry land. Chapter 3, he tells him a second, second time to go to Nineveh and tell him to repent, and so Jonah does it. He goes, and he tells him, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. These were God's enemies. The people of Ninevites were a wicked people. And they were told that Jonah was sent to them. And sure enough, as he gives this message, the people begin to repent from the bottom up. And it even reaches the king. And even the king repents and issues a top-down edict that everyone should repent. And in Jonah 3.10, we're told that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah's full of hope. He's got great theology. He knows that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. What's his problem? The hope is only for God's covenant people. It's only for us. It's not to be for them. Now quickly, Jonah forgot that 40 days earlier, he had been dumped into the sea, swallowed by this great fish. And the imagery is the idea is that he should have been pooped out the back end and instead he's puked out the front end if you want a vivid remembrance, okay? It was grace, grace, grace. He should have been digested and instead he's vomited onto dry land. And he can't, how quickly, 40 days later, and he's forgetting where he was. 
And he thinks that only the Jews deserve salvation, not these other peoples. And so he's eaten up with starting his own denomination. He's on an island. He's having a pity party. And he's waiting for God to bring down judgment because he doesn't like these people. He has left that people. He doesn't want to rejoice in their repentance. It reminds me of the story when George Whitfield went to Scotland, 1700s, and some of the Presbyterians wrote him in advance. It's not a great comment for Presbyterians. They wrote him in advance, and they told Whitfield that we would only like you to preach to us when you get to Scotland. And so Whitfield wanted to know, well, why? And their answer was, because we are God's people. implying the rest of the people are not God's people. Whitfield's reply was that if the Pope himself granted him the pulpit, he would preach the righteousness of Christ therein. Then the Presbyterians proceeded to write a 19-page track against him, accusing him of stealing money. That was, he was collecting money for the orphans in Georgia, and they accused him of the old canard was using it for himself. And Whitfield's response was, I pity them. You see, the Presbyterians often have a Jonah problem. And they think that God is only for them or only for the covenant people. And they lose mission for loving neighbors and and people that we might perceive as enemies. God doesn't write anyone off. We shouldn't either. And so um, that is the, the idea of hope but no mission. Then we got Thomas. So in Thomas, you got in John 11... You have this story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and the whole chapter's busting with this resurrection theme, but earlier in the chapter, Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. You see, Thomas is full of mission. I mean, he is a ride or die. And he's willing to die. He's resolved to be faithful even though he has no hope that it's going to succeed. <laughs> Let's just go and die. <laughs> We're, it's, I'm with you, Jesus, to the end. I don't really think there's going to be any success here, but I'll be with you to the end. And what we have with Thomas here is he's lacking in hope, even though he has mission. Obviously, we need to be in that top quadrant where you see Peter and, and particularly Paul as well, have this idea of they're full of hope and yet they're full of mission. Example, Philippians 1, in Paul's life, he says, it's his eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I And to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in, in Christ Jesus. And then he also said when he called the Ephesian elders together, In Acts 20, as Paul's headed back to Jerusalem, he has this amazing statement. In Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. 
Now that's about as counterculture as any statement in the Bible. Just take that in. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. <laughs> I'm just the opposite. <laughs> and if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. That's what matters. You see, he's full of hope that he knows that, that to die is gain. It's better to die, yet it's necessary that I remain. And he's saying, I don't even count my life precious to myself. My mission is just to testify to the grace of God. Well, with Peter, we see Peter is this same idea of he has hope, and yet he has mission. And so if you look over at 1 Peter 3.15, for example, he says, um, well, first of all, let me just back up to verse 13, because I think there's some great questions here. Now, who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There's a great question to answer. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And why would they ask? Why would they ask? Because they would see something different about your life. They would see some type of joy. They would see good works. They would see you doing good things. Tell me, tell me about this hope that you have. And he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so there's this idea that hope is busting, and yet it doesn't take away from sense of mission. It actually propels into mission. And so that kind of leads us back to Philippians 1.6, where we're called to rejoice even though... In this now, this little while, and if you remember the book ends of the book, it ends with, and the God who's called you in a little while, is how it ends in 510. So we have the book ends of the book, it's just a little while, because how long are we going to live? Just a little while. And if, if necessary, I'll never forget when the first ESV translation came out around year 2000. If anybody has one of these Bibles, you have to come and show me. But the original translation of the ESV was, in this rejo you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary. That about dropped me to the floor. I remember reading it thinking, no other translation has ever said that. You know, it makes you pull out the Greek. You're like, wait a minute, that's, that's pushing it a little bit. I think a better translation is, if necessary. But if necessary... You've been grieved by various trials. There's going to be hard things that you're going to face in this life, and you're not to have give up itis because you have this hope. And here's what he's getting at. So that, that's a henna clause in the Greek, which is a purpose. God has a purpose in this. There's a purpose for the very things that you're facing so that you won't give up. We talked about in Sunday school how God is a shield and if he's allowing hard things to come your way, he's allowing it purposely to go through the shield. If he's your shield, then why are these things happening? Because he has sovereignly allowed it. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found... And this idea is that it's happening upon you. This is aorist passive. It means you're being acted upon. God is doing something. He is refining 
purifying. And he's, he's saying that this faith of ours, it, it's still imperfect in this life. It's still full of anxiety. It's still full of anger. It still has issues of worry and bitterness and fretting and whining and complaining and coveting and lusting and all the different things that we still struggle with. Yet, I believe. Help my unbelief. So, we have to see that God is doing something of purifying us. Well, how does he do it? He does it through affliction. And it's interesting, last week we read the text in Psalm 34, and it just said, affliction will slay the wicked. We just kind of read right over that. Affliction will slay the wicked. You know, da, 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 da. Affliction will slay the wicked. For God's people, they see that, no, God has a purpose in my affliction, that he's purifying me like fire, so that, and, and it gets, and this is vague, and uh, I wrestled with this with Dr. Nola this week, who knows his Greek, and I don't know it very well, and I was looking for answers, and I feel like it's ambiguous in the Greek as to who's doing the praising. Am I the one praising and giving glory and honor to Jesus, or is it Jesus seeing that our faith has been purified as gold as he's refined it, now he is praising and giving glory to us and glorifying us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the master's house with joy, right? Which is it? And biblically, they're both true. And we have a harder time with the latter, that God would actually give praise to us, but he does. I actually think it's more the latter, but... As Mike would argue in the Greek, it's probably more the former, but it can be both. And if you want more specifics, talk to Mike. So, and I don't think the Greek actually tells us, but, but anyway, God is doing something here. And, and the, the glorification is this idea that we will be glorified. We share in his glory. Jesus is obviously, we're going to praise and glory. And, and if he does glorify us, what do we do? We take our crowns and we cast them down at his feet. We cast crowns. Three pictures, and I'll close, and they're from C.S. Lewis. He gives three illustrations that just to get this idea of like, what does this purification idea mean? And I'll give three pictures and I'll conclude. It's the dog, the house, and the artist. Okay? And this is from the problem of pain and mere Christianity. First of all, the dog. And the idea is that we're like dogs. And that God has to give us a bath. And the bath is afflictions. And he says, but let him put that sheath, sheath that sword for a moment, meaning remove trials and affliction from us. And Lewis says, I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and I race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease, Lewis says. Because we're like the dog that will run back and we run back to where we came from. So that's the first illustration. The second is the house. And Lewis says, imagine yourself as a li living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were just being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And so the purification process of refining us as gold is because he's doing a lot more than we thought he was going to do. And that leads us to the artist illustration. And Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, we are not metaphorically, but in a very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up with what I, what I have called the intolerable compliment. The idea is that we didn't want to be loved that bad. <laughs> Over a sketch, he says, over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go even though it's not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it weren't sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and a less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. And so the picture here is it because of God and his great love for us. He's caused us to be born again to this living hope. But in this living hope, we're being grieved right now by various trials. But God has a purpose in that so that we don't have give up itis because we know we have something to hold on to and he's holding on to us and he's refining us through this fire just as he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a literal fire. He's bringing these afflictions so that they are going to lead to something beautiful is that we're going to praise Jesus and he too will rejoice over his children. God is accomplishing something in this. And so we know that there is hope in this world because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing in the future. And hopefully that will change everything of how we live in this present. And I would just say this in closing, that if you ever are one of these people, I remember I had a professor in seminary that, I still remember this, he said, if you're, if you're ever in a situation where you're thinking about committing adultery, I want you to call me. Imagine a professor in seminary and actually writing up his phone number on the board. It, it more left the, the impression of how serious this is. If you're ever thinking about harming yourself, would you call me? Or call one of the pastors or elders of the church Reach out to somebody. And we need to be people that are reaching out to other people because there is a hopelessness that's in our culture. And people are listening. But people need help. And we need to be gracious people at this time because we have something to offer that the world does not. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that in the darkness that your light would break through right now and that this hope of Jesus and what he has done, that this world has a purpose, that it, though it may seem complete chaos, disorder, disharmony, 
unloving, ungracious, hard to compete and keep up. Lord, we thank you that we have all that we need in Jesus. And we find rest in him. We thank you that our approval is not in what we've done or what we will do, but what you've done for us. Thank you. And Lord, we praise you for the resurrection, that you have blown out death. We thank you that you're alive forever. And we thank you, Lord, that we'll be reunited with our loved ones that have loved you. We pray that you would give hope and perseverance to each of us and send us on mission that we would not hide these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.